Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Verse 12, it says, Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead slow, on slowly at a pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, Let me at least leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in your sight, O my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So Esau's like, okay, let's go back to Seir together. I will travel with you. I'll go on ahead of you and we'll get there. And Jacob's like, no, no, no. I can't travel at the same pace. Go on ahead. I'll travel at the pace I'm able to travel with the kids, with the flocks, and I'll meet you in Seir. Now, a few things might be happening. Either one, Jacob's just lying to Esau. He had no intentions of going to Seir. Some people think that, that he's still just Jacob the trickster. Maybe he did have intentions of going to Seir, but he knew he couldn't travel fast. So he's like, no, just go on ahead. But he just never ended up going to Seir. We know that. Um, the Bible doesn't explicitly say one way or the other. And it's funny because that's, that seems to be like the life story of Jacob. Was this right or was this wrong? I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say. It's, that's Jacob's life story. Right? There's a lot of like gray area issues that, that happen within Jacob's life. But what we do know is that if we were to view this in context of the covenant for Jacob, God's promises for Jacob, then it makes sense that they wouldn't dwell together. If Jacob understood the covenant and still was aware of that covenant, which he was, then he would know it probably wasn't a good idea to go bunking with sharing land with Esau that he recognized wisdom in that. Esau may have been quick to forget about the past, the, the birthright for the bull of soup and the blessing of Isaac, but God knew that Jacob would be the blessed one before they were even born. And God has not forgotten the prophecies regarding Esau and Jacob. Namely, that Jacob would rule over the land, that his descendants would rule over the Edomites, Esau's descendants. And that Esau would be ruled by Jacob, but would grow tired and one day cast off the yoke of his brother. These were going to come to pass. And so if Jacob was aware of that, he thought it might be, he 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 probably thought it was wise to keep his distance from Esau. And it wasn't just Jacob avoiding Esau. We actually learn later on Esau avoided Jacob to a degree as well. Esau was aware that it wasn't practical for them to live together. It says in Genesis 36 that Esau intentionally lived in Seir in order to have space from Jacob because their possessions were too great to dwell together. So they both, I think, recognized in the back of their heads, we probably should distance ourselves a bit. Like, you've got a huge family now, I've got a huge family. And it was evident, in, at least in Jacob's eyes, that God had very different plans for the two of them. So in any event, it shows us again that reconciliation doesn't always equate to you being best buds. So understand that. You, have to, you need to reconcile. You, need to, you have to forgive. That's, that's not an option as a believer. Jesus said, forgive even as you have been forgiven. Release those people in your hearts. 
But don't be afraid because it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be best friends. It doesn't mean for those who have been in divorces that they have to go back and remarry their exes. That's not what it means. Or that you have to go rekindle that relationship with your former BFF and, and, and you got to talk every day. Reconciliation does not always equate to restoration or does not always equate to close proximity and close friendships. And I think Jacob was relieved to reconcile with Esau, but he also saw the wisdom in keeping distance from Esau at the same time. Verse 17 it says, But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And we won't, we'll avoid jokes about the name of that place. But Succoth means booths. It just simply means booths, tabernacles, or you know, temporary dwelling places. Uh, sign- really signifying that this was a temporary place for Jacob. But it seems what he's doing here is, he is he's, he, he's setting up camp. And he, he, he actually builds a house. He's planning on being there for at least a few months in order to recoup, to regather. Remember, they had separated themselves as flocks and herdsmen as they prepared to meet Esau. So now they regather, they establish themselves again, strengthen the flock, strengthen the kids before they go back into the land of Canaan. Succoth is just outside, just east of the Jordan, just outside the land of Canaan. So he's just short of his, of his destination. He hasn't quite made it yet, but it's likely just to regather themselves before they enter into Canaan. And the Canaanites aren't the most hospitable people. So it's, it's probably good they regather, they regroup, and they're strong when they go into the land of Canaan. Verse 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and on his way from Padanaram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. So they, they come in, they land just outside of this town called Shechem, and he pitches his tent and basically sets up shop right there. And he finds favor in the eyes of the chieftain there, Hamor, the, the leader of Shechem. And he sells him the land. And we, we find out that Hamor sees how rich Jacob is and is like, we could probably benefit from this guy being around us, being in our economy, being in our community. And so he, he, gives, he gives Jacob favor. Now, I don't know if you remember when Abraham tried to buy land from the Canaanites, but there was some resistance. Remember when he was trying to buy a, a grave plot for Sarah, they initially didn't want to sell it to him. They said, well, just take it for free. And it was, it was perhaps because they didn't want Abraham to be a fellow landowner among them and then to grow in power as another chieftain in their area. It seemed like they were limiting Abraham, but here they don't do that with Jacob. They, they have, he has favor. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing for Jacob. So he buys land, We'll see in the next chapter, it doesn't work out very good. And in fact, oftentimes when the chosen line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob start to get too close of interaction and peace with the Canaanites, something goes awry. They just don't mix well according to God's plan and God's covenant because God was, remember the covenant, God was creating a new nation free from idolatry, a nation that would serve Him, the true and living God alone, and be governed by the true and living God. And so for them to assimilate into the Canaanite culture was not what God had in store. It is what the enemy would want. So we'll see as in the coming chapters how there's more conflict with the Canaanites. And remember this as well, that the Canaanites represent sin in a believer's life. The Canaanites in the promised land represent compromise in your life 
as the promised land, as the dwelling place of God. And with regards to sin and compromise, there is no finding a peaceable way to live with it in your life. As a Christian, you don't try to find ways to live peaceably with your uh, pornography addiction or your drug addiction or your gossip addiction or these little compromises that, that seem to linger in your life. You don't find ways to be at peace with them and be a Christian. You find ways to cut them out. You cut them out of your life. And that's what the Canaanites represent. We'll see that as time goes on, God will eventually be like, we got to cut these guys out of the land altogether. He's already declared that. That's the best policy with regards to sin. Verse 20, the last verse, it says there that Jacob erected an altar and he called it El Elo Israel, which basically means God, the God of Israel. So he, he creates this altar where he's going to worship God and he calls this location of worship, God is the God of Israel. In other words, the true God, the real God, is the God of Israel, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The true and living God is my God, is what he's saying. And so I, I want to close on this thought. That's, that's an amazing way that we should worship the Lord, and that is worshiping him in truth, worshiping him because he is the true and living God. And I want to ask you, do you believe what you believe because it's true? Do you worship the true and living God because it's true? Or do you have some other ulterior motive for following Jesus or worshiping whatever you worship? You see, a lot of people worship because it's convenient for them, because it benefits them, because it's popular. These are oftentimes the, the motivations for worship. Whether it's worshiping Jesus or worshiping something else out in the community, whatever other idol the world is throwing at you. And if you worship, this is, this is standard idolatry. If you were to go back in Jacob's day, these were the things that dictated idolatry in their day. What was the popular idol of the, of the town? What was what the culture, what, what idol was the culture pushing? If you go to your little idol shop, what was the best seller? And you'd pick up that, that idol. What idol would benefit you? There was all these different gods and idols that would benefit you and make your life better now, here and now, in different areas. None of those are reasons to worship God, ultimately. And I want to tell you, if you're worshiping Jesus for those reasons because you think He's just going to make your life better, you're likely just as guilty of idolatry as everybody else in the world. Do you know that? You might have the true and living God as the object, but you're, you're worshiping Him as an idol not as the true God. And it's probably only a matter of time before another idol that doesn't cost you as much as Jesus comes along and you're going to trade Jesus in if you're an idolater. Guys, this is rampant in America, this type of idolatry toward Jesus. We should worship Jesus because it's true. Listen to the importance of truth as a, as a follower of Christ, okay? Jesus said of himself, he said, I am truth. So if you seek truth, who do you find? You find Jesus. Jesus said true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. True worshipers worship in truth. They're concerned with the truth. Jesus said true disciples will abide in his word and they shall know the truth and the truth shall set them free. 
Jesus prayed to the Father for His true disciples and He said, Father, sanctify them by Your Word for Your Word is truth. Do you value truth? Are you a truth seeker? Or do you just go with the flow? Do you go with feelings? Do you go with what benefits you now? Guys, it's so important that you make up your mind now to follow Jesus, not because it feels good, not because it benefits you today, but because it's true. There are so many today, guys, who are walking away from the church and the faith, and it's because they were never true disciples of truth. They were disciples, they were following Jesus because it was what they were raised to do, because it was the popular thing, because they grew up in youth group and just the other kids talked about Jesus. Those aren't good reasons. And, and now we're seeing this departure from the faith, this apostasy. Uh, everyone's talking about they're deconstructing faith. Let me tell you, if your faith is in truth, it can't be deconstructed because the truth cannot be deconstructed. Jesus Christ cannot be deconstructed. Right? And Jacob is among the saved, not because he follows the truth perfectly, and neither are you. We, we all struggle still to follow the truth perfectly. Jacob is a true disciple and he's saved not because he knows all the truth completely and perfectly, and neither are you. Your theology doesn't have to be perfect, but Jacob was a true disciple and and is saved because he was a believer in the truth. Because he put his faith and trust in the true and living God. And he knew that to be the true and living God. And so maybe I can ask you, What questions keep you from wholeheartedly believing that Jesus is the true Savior? Address those questions. Ask those questions. Seek out those questions. What obstacles are keeping you from wholeheartedly trusting in Jesus as the true God despite all the criticism in the world that's coming at you? What's keeping you from making up your mind about Jesus? He stood the test of time, guys, and I can tell you there's no other Savior in all the world offered like Jesus This man who lived, a historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, who performed miracles his greatest critics could not deny, said that he would be crucified according to the Scriptures and was, was laid in a tomb and raised from the dead three days later. His tomb was empty. Even his greatest enemies and critics could not deny the fact that his tomb was empty and that he was seen by by people. Jesus is risen. Jesus is the true, the only true Savior that is, that, has, that is available to you. So I encourage you right now, if you can identify that type of idolatry, just cut it out and choose to follow Jesus. Choose to follow the truth. And you will be set free. You will be planted firm on the rock of Christ. And you will also leave that legacy like Jacob did for those around him, that you would worship the true and living God. Amen? Let's pray. And Father, we do just come to you right now acknowledging God. It's okay to have questions. It's okay even to have doubts, Lord God, but that we would bring these to you, understanding that you are a God with answers, that you are a God, Lord, who is the truth, that you were not made up, that you are not an invention, Lord God, of some creative minds, but that you truly revealed yourself through this godly line through the Jewish nation. And it's been recorded for us that you've revealed yourself, Lord God, uh, most accurately about 2,000 years ago when you sent Jesus, your Son, to present to us the character of the Father. 
And so we, we, we believe, Jesus, that You are the true and living God. We put our faith and trust in You. We choose to follow the truth, Lord, no matter what it costs us. And Father, it is, it is growing more and more costly to follow biblical principles right now in our society. But we still choose to follow, despite what it costs. And so, Lord, I pray for those before me that You give them courage and strength to pursue the truth regardless of where this nation is headed, no matter what the cost, Lord, that we would be counted uh, worthy even to die for the sake of the gospel, Lord God, that we would be the true disciples as Jacob was. We love you, we want to honor you, and we give you praise and thanks tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Sean here with Ignition Tucson. I wanted to bring you a moment of discipleship. One of the things that we often teach at Ignition Tucson as we seek to make disciples is the six practices of a disciple. These are six things that we should be doing if we are growing and maturing in Christ. Now, these six things aren't things that we would do to earn salvation, but rather these are things we do as a response to our salvation and as God's Holy Spirit is working within us. And the six things are worship, read, pray, serve, give, and commune. And I want to go over with you these six things. The first is worship, that we would put God first, that we would not only worship God within our hearts, but externally, physically, allow our worship to affect our outside, that we would sing, that we would lift our hands and clap and dance, that we would be around other people who outwardly express worship as well. The second is read, that we would be men and women who study the Word of God, that we would be diligent and disciplined to grow in our understanding of God's Word. The third is pray, that we would be in communication with God, that we would talk to Him daily, giving Him thanks for all the things He's given us, uh, taking our concerns and cares to Him, asking Him for things, that we would pray. The fourth is serving, that we would be men and women of service who don't simply sit on our hands and watch others do the work of ministry, but we would be active and engaged in not just serving at church, but that we would be engaged serving in our homes and in our workplaces, that we would get up and not be afraid to to be the one to take out the trash and to do the dishes and to volunteer in, in the children's ministry, and that we would do these things that maybe other people shy away from, that we would serve our community. The, fo- the fifth is give, that we would be men and women who give of our time, our talent, our treasure. And this really does speak of, of monetary giving, giving of our money, that we should trust God uh, with our finances and in turn give to the work of the ministry. That doesn't necessarily mean you give to this church, but it means that you give God money somewhere, that you support uh, the ministry that He is doing in the world around us. And then lastly, that we would commune. This word commune means to have fellowship. It has the idea of sharing meals with people. But what it really means is that when we are with people, we are present with them. We look them in the eye. We care about what they are saying and we engage with them as we seek to commune with God, that we would truly engage with God. And as you do these six things, worship, read, pray, serve, give, and commune, you will grow in Christ, I guarantee it. We would love to invite you out to our in-person services. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus. God bless you.